Welcome to the Federal Society's Practice Group Podcast. The following podcast, hosted by the Federal Society's Telecommunications and Electronic Media Practice Group and Corporation Securities and Antitrust Practice Group, was recorded on Friday, October 4th, 2019, during a live teleform conference call held exclusively for Federal Society members. Welcome to the Federal Society's Teleform Conference Call. This afternoon's topic is entitled, FTC's 21st Century Hearings, Paving the Way for Principles and Guidance. My name is Michael Wallen, and I am the Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have with us three premier experts on this topic, including our moderator, Svetlana Gans, who is Vice President and Associate General Counsel at the NCTA. After our panel gives their opening remarks, we will then go to audience Q&A. Thank you all for sharing with us today. Svetlana, the floor is yours. Great. Thank you so very much, and thank you all for joining us this afternoon where we'll be discussing the FTC's 21st century hearings. We have with us two exceptional presenters. The first is Maureen Olhausen. She is the chair of the antitrust practice group at Baker Botts. As many of you know, she was the acting chairman and commissioner at the Federal Trade Commission. She directed all aspects of the FTC's work, including merger review, conduct enforcement, and she steered all FTC consumer protection enforcement with a particular emphasis on privacy and technology issues. As a thought leader, Commissioner Olhausen has published dozens of articles on antitrust, privacy, intellectual property, regulation, FTC litigation, telecommunications, and international law in prestigious publications, and she has testified numerous times before the U.S. Congress. So thank you, Maureen, for joining us. We also have with us Dwayne Poza. He is a partner at Wiley Ryan. Dwayne advises clients on key legal issues, advocacy positions, and regulatory compliance involving consumer uses of developing technologies. Prior to joining Wiley Ryan, Dwayne was an assistant director in the Division of Financial Practices, at the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection. There, he led consumer protection efforts in financial technology and other sectors and supervised investigations and enforcement actions involving consumer protection issues on technology platforms. Dwayne, thank you for joining us. So as we know, the FTC has held a series of hearings in the fall and spring examining whether broad-based changes to the economy, technology, and international development might require any adjustments to competition in consumer protection law, policy, and enforcement. Maureen, can you let us know why the FTC undertook the hearings? When Chairman Simons came into office in May of 2018, he expressed an interest in revisiting an approach that his former professor, Chairman Bob Potofsky, took in 1995, which was to have a wide-ranging set of hearings, which were called the Global Competition and Innovation Hearings. Chairman Simons' opening remarks for the new round of hearings pointed back to those hearings as a first major step in establishing the FTC as a key modern center for competition policy research and development and to seek recommendations to ensure the competitiveness of U.S. markets would continue. So hearkening back to those 1995 hearings as a template, Chairman Simons has used these hearings as an attempt to address some of the issues that are being the hard questions that are being asked of antitrust in the agency 
these days? Is antitrust up to the task? Is consumer welfare the right standard? Have the agencies paid enough attention to to other types of issues? What about vertical mergers? There's There's kind of a host of questions that are being raised these days involving antitrust and privacy and consumer protection issues. And Chairman Simon's view was that having these hearings would be an opportunity to bring lots of voices into the debate, academics, industry, economists, other policy makers, other parts of the government, have, have a discussion. And then from that, to be able to develop some ideas of where changes might be necessary, and if so, what those changes would be. Great. Thanks. Dwayne, the Office of Policy Planning is the office that is putting these hearings together. Can you talk about um, each other office or division's role in organizing the hearings and helping with the hearings? That's a great question. I really think that um, these hearings have been a commission-wide team effort that has evolved really just all aspects of the different bureaus and divisions at the commission. As you mentioned, the Office of Policy Planning has taken the laboring oar on organizing all of the hearings, um, which, which is quite a task. Um, and that is an important office within the agency for developing these sorts of policy approaches um, through these kinds of things like workshops. They've had substantial input from each of the bureaus as well as you know, the divisions within the bureaus. So, um, you know, there's both the Bureau of Consumer Protection and of Competition. Just looking at the privacy hearing, for example, you see uh, among the moderators, you know, everyone from all levels of the bureau down to um, staff attorneys who are actually, you know, doing a lot of work in privacy who are moderating many of these panels. Another key uh, input is the Bureau of Economics, which is a very important part of the agency's mission and work. Certainly members, uh, economists, and management there also participated. And we even saw in the hearing on international affairs, international affairs that the separate office also involved and really bringing together uh, stakeholders globally on a lot of these same issues. So I think it's been a real big group effort and quite a logistical challenge that they have pulled off. So with OPP leading the charge with other divisions, helping out by moderating and providing questions and content for the panels, how does it work internally in terms of the process for the FTC to issue any output or summaries um, from the hearings? Previous iteration at the Federal Trade Commission, I was head of the Office of Policy Planning, <laughs> so I and, and held the hearings and issued reports and recommendations. So there's there's a lot of different ways it can go actually from hearings like these. I mean, these are so wide ranging. Uh, I I don't uh, quite know what the output will look like. We have some ideas that uh, we can we can talk about later, but from these broad based hearings, you could end up with a broad-based report, much like the 1995 hearings ended up with two kind of broad-based reports. The FTC has sometimes done a very deep dive on particular issues based on hearings. For example, when we did the hearing on competition in broadband, we uh, ended up with a very lengthy but focused report just on that issue. So there can be uh, like a host of different outputs from these types of hearings. I think that these have been so broad in scope, I wouldn't anticipate that there would be one report that encapsulates all of it, because I think that would be quite, quite a large project. But typically, the outputs, the report have the input. Uh, they take all the, you know, their public comments, 
the things that the uh, presenters at each particular hearing said and try to synthesize it. And you have input from the Bureau of Economics, the Enforcement Bureaus, Bureau of Competition, Bureau of Consumer Protection to fashion whatever is the output. If it is going to be an official uh, report of the agency, then it would need to be presented before the commissioners and they could approve it as a staff report uh, or approve it as guidance or something like that. There is also the option when we did the um, FTC at 100 uh, in anticipation of the FTC's 100th anniversary, which I headed up for Chairman Kavasek, that ended up just being a chairman's report. So there, there are a lot of different outputs that that could could emerge. We have we have some ideas of what might come out of it, but uh, the possibilities are quite broad. Okay, great. Thank you so much. That's really helpful. So let's take a deep dive in terms of the specific topics that the FCC explored at the hearings and get your thoughts on what you think. Number one, what the FCC examined, the questions presented, and number two, what you think might be the output from the specific hearings that the FCC put on. So, Maureen, let's start with you. FTC had a, a hearing concerning platforms. Can you talk a little bit about what the FTC examined in that hearing? So, multi-sided platforms, they've been a hot topic in antitrust. Uh, we think about them in the tech space. A lot of big tech players are uh, multi-sided platforms, but that's not the only place where they arise. In fact, a recent Supreme Court case, the MX case, involved payment systems as a multi-sided platform. And uh, what the FTC, the questions that the FTC put forth for discussion were what are the defining characteristics of multi-sided platforms, which still bears um, discussion. I actually went to the oral argument for the Amex case, and that was a big part of the discussion in front of the justices. Well, what makes a multi-sided platform? Is it is every transaction a, a two-sided market or or, or some just direct or kind of what, you know, what, what makes something, uh, you know, a platform like that? Are there adjustments to antitrust analysis necessary to account for the special characteristics of multi-sided businesses? We often, th- you know, the way I think of a platform is that you're taking people on one side of the market, um, whether it is viewers or it is merchants, <laughs> and then uh, the platform is connecting them with people on the other side of the market, whether it's advertisers or it's purchasers or some, something like that, and that uh, the, the platform brings them together to create a transaction that would be very difficult um, to, to do otherwise. It's a very efficient way to, to connect uh, these, these two sides, but sometimes the demand uh, on one side is relevant to the demand on the other side, and, and sometimes it's not. It's kind of a... Um, not, not a one-size-fits-all kind of analysis. The other, some of the other questions the FTC asked were, how should the courts and agencies define relevant antitrust markets and measure market power for multi-sided platform businesses? What side of the market do you look at for market power? And for platforms in the tech space, people are often saying, well, antitrust doesn't work because they're, you know, people are using this platform free, so there's no price and it can't be measured. But you might say, well, there's a price on the other side, right? There might be a commission that needs to be paid or there might be for advertisers, they're paying to have their ads served to the viewers who are seeing things free. So I think that definitely bears some, uh, you know, requires some important discussion. Other questions is what's the relevance of network effects? The FTC looked at that 
in multi-sided platform markets. You tend to have strong, you might have strong network effects because the, the platform and the network becomes more valuable the more pe- to each user, the more people who are using it, right? You join a social network because you want to see all the other people on it. And as more people join, it becomes more valuable to all of you. And that creates network effects. Another question the FTC asks is how should the courts and agencies evaluate exclusionary conduct by firms competing in multi-sided platform markets? And they identify things like predatory pricing or vertical restraints, most favored nation clauses and actions to undermine rivals who depend on platform infrastructure. Fifth question was, are there unique pro-competitive justifications for these types of conduct by firms competing in multi-sided platform markets? And then the final question the FTC identified is, what's the relevant legal precedent for evaluating antitrust concerns related to multi-sided platform businesses? So you can see in the questions the FTC identified, they were bringing forth the kinds of questions and, and trying to spur input and debate on some of the hottest topics in antitrust today, often related to the tech industry, but but not solely. And what have some of your key takeaways been on that topic through the FTC hearings process? Well, I mean, personally, I think some of the key takeaways from this um, have been figuring out what the relationship or trying to figure out what the relationship is from these hearings to then the FTC announced that it's got this tech task force um, and that the task force would be looking at and mostly in the antitrust space, but also has some possible overlap with consumer protection slash privacy issues. So are these kinds of issues now being explored, I think they are being explored by the tech task force and involving particular players in the market, right? So the hearings seem to lay some of the groundwork, and then you've got the tech task force kind of up taking that theory and applying it in particular investigations. And then, you know, we'll see, we'll see what the ultimate output is. But it went, it went from hearings to the tech task force talking to a lot of people, asking a lot of questions, and now reportedly the tech task force has started some some investigation. So I think, uh, you know, re- kind of remains to be seen uh, what will be the outcome. We, we have some suggestions from Bilal Syed, the head of the Office of Policy Planning, that some guidance document might emerge from the here. A series of guidance documents might emerge. And one of them is that Bilal identified in a recent speech at Georgetown. He said one of the next steps in the hearings is the articulation and publication of a clear analytical framework for the evaluation of unilateral conduct by allegedly dominant technology platforms. So it'll be interesting to see how they take what they heard at the hearing and perhaps distill it down into what this guidance uh, document might look like. The FTC also examined the issue of vertical mergers in the hearing. Can you describe what key questions were presented in those hearings and what your key takeaways um, have been? Sure. So vertical mergers have been a very hot issue, and you see it in the FTC enforcement itself. There have been some issues involving strong disagreements between the commissioners about how vertical mergers should, should should be treated and what concerns there should be. So they explored some of those, some of those kinds of questions they looked at issues like, should the U.S. antitrust agencies publish vertical merger guidelines? 
right now there is a set of guidelines that DOJ had put out, but everyone agrees they're out of date. I think the agreement is less full on, well, what should the new vertical merger guidelines look like? One of the things that we've heard is that DOJ is working on new vertical merger guidelines. Then the FTC has said that it's working on commentary to vertical merger guidelines. So that will be interesting. But so one of the questions that the FTC raised at the hearings are what should be done? What guidance should they provide regarding, you know, theories of competitive harm and the treatment of transaction-related efficiencies in vertical mergers? Should the guidelines recognize a presumption of anti-competitive harm? Then how do you overcome that presumption? There's a big debate about using behavioral remedies in in a vertical merger. You know, in a horizontal merger, we often have a structural remedy if there's a, a problem that can be solved that way. It's uh, you know, uh, the entities need to divest the assets, right? You can sell the overlapping asset to some other player in the market who can uh, maintain maintain the competition. But by definition, a vertical merger does not create a horizontal overlap. So there's not that easy, like, spin off an asset kind of issue. So there's this question about, well, should behavioral remedies be the right approach in vertical merger? Um, Macon Delrahim, the head of the antitrust division, has expressed a strong leaning against having any behavioral remedies. Um, the FTC has been less categorical. It has accepted a behavioral remedy in, the, like, for example, the Northrop Orbital ATK merger. So that's one of the questions that they teed up for discussion. And then also at the vertical merger hearing, they, uh, one, one of the other questions is, interestingly, how does consumer welfare play into this um, also? So I think um, those, those are some of, the, some of the issues that might be discussed. Uh, well, obviously, consumer welfare is kind of a big freestanding topic on its own. But in, the, you know, in whatever comes out on vertical, vertical merger, it's interesting. And that's one of the other areas that Bilal identified as um, needing a clear analytical framework for the evaluation of vertical in- integration through acquisition or merger. So we'll see, we'll see what emerges from the FTC on that and also um, the DOJ. One other topic that they explored um, at the antitrust hearings uh, was the nascent competition and how uh, the purchase of nascent competitors might change the marketplace dynamics for both other competitors and for the Purchaser, can you describe a little bit what the FTC focused on with respect to nascent competition issues? So again, that's become a very hot topic, catch and kill mergers, elimination of a a nascent competitor. So the questions they asked are what's the appropriate antitrust framework to evaluate acquisitions of potential or nascent competitors? And and they specifically focused on high technology markets. So when I was there, we actually brought up an actual potential competition case. Uh, it wasn't in a high-tech market. It uh, had to do with sterilization of uh, medical equipment and other things like that called Steris. And we weren't successful. We couldn't con- convince the courts. Um, we did bring a case called CDK Automate. It was a merger challenge where a, um, in a concentrated market, one of the big players was buying an upstart. And uh, we felt... We had reason to believe, I should say, not just felt. We had reason to believe that it was going to uh, reduce competition because this small player was poised to start 
uh, really cutting into, we, we thought, the market share of, of the big player. And it seemed like the big player had um, plans to, in the merger, take over the little player and kind of uh, take away what made it special and disable some of its uh, most appealing attributes. So the FTC has been dealing with these issues and the parties abandoned that, but it's been a challenging area of enforcement. So the FTC in the hearings is asking what's the appropriate antitrust framework, is the current antitrust law sufficient for developing challenges to these types of acquisitions? There are serious questions being raised about whether the agencies can detect um, early enough that, that this you know, merger is going to be anti-competitive in a product or a market that hasn't even been really developed yet. The third question is, how should the antitrust agencies evaluate whether a nascent technology is likely to develop into a competitive threat in a dynamic high-technology market? So that, there's that, that problem teed up. And then finally, what are some pragmatic approaches that the antitrust enforcement agencies could consider for enhancing their evaluation of these types of acquisitions. Because that, that's always the challenge as an enforcement agency. They're going to have to show proof that if they're going to challenge one of these or try to, you know, even more d- difficult, undo one that had previous been, previously um, occurred, you know, they have to be able to show the, the evidence uh, that this was anti-competitive. That was one of the other questions that, well, issues that the FTC raised in the workshop and sorry, in the hearings. Great. Thanks so much, Maureen. Um, Dwayne, let, let's turn to you and, and talk a little bit about the FTC's hearings covering consumer protection issues. The FTC had a, two days of hearings in April covering privacy. Um, can you talk a little bit about the key issues that the FTC analyzed in that hearing and any thoughts you may have on, on what the FTC may be doing in terms of output with respect to the privacy hearing? Sure. As you mentioned, um, the privacy hearing uh, took place over two days uh, in April of this year, and it consisted of 10 panels, and each panel um, had a, a discrete topic. So they asked a lot of questions, safe to say, about privacy. And you know, the backdrop is that in 2012, the uh, commission put out uh, the, the 2012, sorry, in 2012, a privacy report that sort of outlined views on privacy best practices. And part of the idea behind this hearing was to attempt to comprehensively reevaluate whether or not there should be sort of a change in the FTC's approach to privacy, in part caused by technological changes. So that was the backdrop, I think, of all of the different panels sort of grouped them into <clears throat> five basic questions, this general overview of what I think their main questions were. The first is, what are the goals of privacy protection? There is quite a debate about really what the point of having uh, specific kinds of privacy laws is. Is it to protect consumers against specific identifiable harms? Is it a more nebulous version of um, privacy interests that consumers have? So. For example, um, you know, some of the panelists talked about the need to ground any sort of privacy enforcement in vindicating specific kinds of injury, like a risk of financial harm from your information, for example, being stolen, or maybe a risk of reputational damage, although that is that, that was also debated um, based on some sort of um, privacy privacy harm. So on the flip side, you know, there are definitely certain advocates who think that the sharing of information for use in, say, targeted advertising is itself something that the privacy laws should attempt to address. And there's a 
question as to whether or not that's really sort of harmful to consumers. Um, you know, that targeted advertising obviously has many benefits and uh, doesn't necessarily fit into the same sort of harm framework. So that, I think, is a foundational question of trying to figure out um, where we go on privacy. The second uh, big question was, what are consumer expectations around privacy? The backdrop to trying to figure out the way forward on um, privacy from a consumer protection side is, what do consumers really want? You see, for example, that if you're talking about your standard um, data-driven advertising model, right, a model that allows platforms and websites to provide um, sort of free information services in exchange for consumer data they use for advertising, that's incredibly popular, right? There's a question about whether or not cost should be imposed on those operators if consumer behavior is such that they keep using them, right, that they seem to be desirable. So there's a lot of discussion around um, the consumer expectations around uh, privacy and these advertising models specifically. The third is what kind of information is highly sensitive and it deserves greater protection. Traditionally, privacy advocates and enforcers have distinguished between different kinds of highly private information like social security numbers or health records, for example. So there's a discussion about sort of the range of what would be considered to be highly sensitive, things like geolocation data, for example, or data that could be potentially de-identified using uh, modern technology. The fourth is getting to sort of really big questions. What's the best regulatory framework? So traditionally, a lot of the approach to privacy has been the so-called notice and choice model which is the idea that uh, consumers should have an understanding, be given notice of what the privacy practices are of a website or service or anyone who they, they're dealing with on a commercial basis, and then make a choice about whether or not they want to continue to engage in that service. Obviously, privacy policies are very long, and um, it, people probably don't read them. There are statistics about that. And there's a question about whether or not there should be something more protective or whether or not that's an effective way of setting up a sort of privacy framework for empowering consumers. You see, and there was a discussion about, you know, more specific kinds of consumer tools or often, you know, in the GDPR framework, rights to, for example, access to a consumer's own data, the right to request deletion of the data or correction of the data. These go a step further. They're giving consumers the opportunity to sort of control in some sense their data after it's been collected uh, by a company that they're engaged with. These impose significant compliance costs on the companies themselves. Obviously, there's empirical evidence that's coming out of what's going on in Europe under the GDPR, and um, there will, I think, continue to be effects as we see uh, some states moving toward this kind of general framework of something that, that is more regulatory. And then the last piece was how should companies be held sort of accountable is, is, is how they put it. You know, there's different views on, um, on this. You know, one is sort of the market-driven view that consumers should have the tools to, to make a choice to deal with companies, and if they are choosing to deal with them, that is the best way to control any sort of perceived uh, privacy violation, let, let folks decide. And that, obviously, uh, is there are different views on that. There was also a discussion about whether or not, if there are violations, um, you know, the FTC has the right tools. This commission has called for for example, civil penalties for, for the first-time violation to basically have some financial penalties if there are privacy violations. And then sort of on, on, the, on the spectrum of potential ways in which companies could be held accountable would be whether or not there need to be new laws. Um, so, you know, the FTC has the authority to enforce a variety of privacy laws. A lot of it is under Section 5 of the FTC Act. 
but obviously there's a broader discussion about whether or not there should be more specific laws uh, that would be passed and be given to the FTC. You'd also ask Svetlana about where we see it going in terms of an output. I think that remains to be de determined. Um, I think uh, unlike the, the competition side where we have a little bit more of a, of a hint of what the actual outcome would be, uh, it's a little bit harder to tell. I think if you look at what's been done in the past and um, it's reasonable to, to think there'll be a report of some sort that talks about um, the current stage of the FTC's thinking on privacy. It's also an area where there might not be um, a lot of consensus. It's hard to tell exactly what, what that report looks like or what whatever statements coming out of it look like. So sticking with the privacy topic, um, does the FTC's work on privacy, privacy impact in any way what Congress is looking into right now with respect to a potential baseline privacy law? I think it does. I think in, you know, where we are generally in terms of the broader societal debates over privacy is there's somewhat of a dialogue going on here um, where, you know, Congress is currently between Congress and, and the agency. You know, Congress is considering various proposals, although they have, have not advanced very far, um, to develop different kinds of sort of models of a privacy law. And they have not yet reached consensus. Uh, the, the commission has indicated that it, it would like to see a few specific things that would impact its privacy enforcement, like civil penalties and also um, the ability to go after common carriers and nonprofits. But beyond that, on the substance, um, I think it will be interesting to see um, where the commission goes in terms of any concrete recommendations on anything that is would be sort of more substantive beyond just augmenting uh, their sort of authorities or powers or, or rulemaking, for example. With, with Congress. Um, I think there could be, again, differences of opinion among commissioners as to whether or not they are, are for sort of a more prescriptive privacy law being passed by Congress. But I think whatever output comes out of these hearings will be, uh, will influence, uh, in part because it is a bipartisan agency, right, um, what Congress might be able to possibly pass. Not saying they will, but, you know, as they look towards trying to pass something next year. I will say the other piece to this is, you know, the elephant in the room is that uh, while Congress has, has not really been acting, states have gone forward. California passed its um, CCPA, which is um, uh, a much more regulatory model than um, with these additional sort of consumer rights that is different from the, the, sort of the framework that the FTC is enforcing, right? So that's also been suggested that that could be something that Congress would act, and it'll be interesting to see how the existence of these separate state-by-state -state laws influences you know, sort of what, what the FTC says about um, its privacy recommendations. So one other topic they explored well, might actually be on the intersection of competition and consumer protection, but it was big data and AI. Um, Dwayne, can you talk a little bit about the issues the FTC examined in that hearing and what you, um, some of your key takeaways were from those hearings? So there was a, a hearing on, um, uh, they called it Algorithms, Artificial Intelligence, and Predictive Analytics, which was pretty broad. It had both consumer protection and um, competition angles, competition angles like the issue of algorithmic collusion, for example. On the consumer protection side, I think it's, you know, a big takeaway from the hearing, uh, which I think was really designed to flesh out what are the potential issues, was that it's sort of early days. I think the this, is, this hearing was a model of the commission trying to get a sense of the areas in which it is likely to um, focus some additional efforts. You know, it's not as far along or developed, obviously, as sort of privacy. But that said, 
you know, the, the hearing on AI built on uh, work that the commission previously had done, specifically on facial recognition, but then also um, in big data, I believe that that report is from, I think, 2016. The big data report ha has a lot of takeaways, and I think it, you know, goes through a lot of the issues that underlie the kinds of consumer protection issues that we'll see in AI, and it builds on top of it. I'll just run through three that I think surfaced and that were talked about a lot. The first one is issues of bias and fairness. There's a concern that, for example, AI processes might replicate biases that are in the underlying data set in a way that might cause some sort of discriminatory outcomes. Once you start talking about fairness, you start getting away from something that fits into a regulatory framework, but that, that is sort of the language still being used. You know, as the big data report pointed out, and uh, as was discussed here, there are some sector-specific rules around the way AI could be used that might result in some unlawful biased or discriminatory outputs, for example, fair credit, right? But then there are some areas where it's sort of, there aren't those very specific laws. The second piece that was talked about, about was um, I would group as explainability and transparency. There was concern that AI might not be sufficiently, you know, explainable or transparent. If something goes wrong, you don't know why, or even that it's something that the sort of humans who, are, who develop the algorithms would not be able to sort of control. Again, if you look at the big data report, they point to um, credit decisions, right? That's a an area where there already is this sort of established framework of, okay, you need to be able to explain credit decisions. And if you um, you map AI on top of that, you know, you're mapping it into an existing regulatory framework. Uh, again, and these are laws like the FTC would also be able to enforce. But outside of that, you know, it's, it's still going to be developed a bit. And the last piece was question about whether or not this notice and choice regime that you have from privacy would also apply to AI or there would be some sort of disclosure requirement around use of AI or algorithmic processes. I think that there is a recognition that given that machine learning, AI, algorithmic decision-making has become more and more ubiquitous, uh, it's not necessary, it's not really the kind of thing where you can require d disclosure everywhere, right? Um, your uh, voice-activated speaker in your house might be using AI, and um, that's, or might not, um, but it, that is a sort of a background to a lot of modern technology. So I think overall, there was a recognition that the technology is moving quickly and an attempt to get a sense of what might be the consumer facing and potential competition issues that continue to focus on. Maureen, one of the issues that we've been hearing a lot about in the news and at the FTC hearings is a potential intersection between competition and privacy. Can you explain a little bit about um, what folks are talking about and your view as to whether there is some sort of intersection between the two? This is a topic that really started to percolate into the antitrust debate starting probably five or six years ago. This question of whether private, well, even before that, actually going back to the Google double-click merger, which I think was around 2004, so, <laughs> so even further back. So there, so there's this question of whether what was kind of started out with, whether allowing a merger between two companies that had consumer data sets of consumer information, uh, allowing them to merge, even if it created efficiencies and new products or something like that, whether if it had a negative impact on privacy, that would be a grounds to stop the merger under antitrust law. 
So the FTC majority rejected that contention, uh, allowed the Google double-click merger to go forward, pointed out that antitrust law, you know, is, is different to separate goal than privacy law. There are subsequent mergers where these issues have been raised, and uh, the FTC um, had pointed out that if there is a consumer protection privacy violation uh, by the company, say it made a promise about how it was going to use certain data that was in the um, uh, Amazon buying um, WhatsApp. The question was, well, the data on WhatsApp had been collected under one set of privacy promises. Um, was Amazon, I'm sorry, was uh, Facebook going to adhere to those? And the head of the Bureau of Consumer Protection wrote a letter saying, well, you have to keep your privacy promises, and if you don't, it's a consumer protection violation. But it wasn't, again, a reason to stop the merger. So, so initially, I think it started out with that kind of question, you know, should, a, should an agency challenge a merger because of its impact on consumer privacy, not where the entities were competing on privacy, right, where that's a kind of normal merger kind of factor you might look at, is this going to reduce competition in the area in which the entities are currently competing? So from there, then, it's, the debate has moved on into the question of whether the fact that a company has a large amount of consumer data, is it giving it some kind of ability through its market power to impose terms on consumers to get more information out of them, and therefore it would be some kind of antitrust violation. So that theory was teed up by the German antitrust agency, the Bundeskartellamt. Uh, it brought uh, issued a decision saying that because Facebook was a dominant player in social media, that it had used that dominance to extract more information from consumers than consumers wanted to share, and that it had violated the general data protection regulation, the European Privacy Law GDPR, which is interesting when you have the antitrust agency saying, which doesn't enforce the privacy law, <laughs> saying that it was a, a violation. So the, so the German, kind of relying on old German case law, the German antitrust enforcer said, ah, oh, you know, a violation of antitrust law because you, you know, you're violating people's privacy. Interestingly, that got appealed to the intermediate court in Germany who disagreed, who said that's not what an antitrust analysis is supposed to be. It's supposed to look at competition, not at a consumer protection privacy kind of theory. So that's a case that's actually played out still to be, you know, resolved because the Bundeskartellamt said it's going to take an appeal from that intermediate court decision. But these are the kinds of issues that are being raised right now. Does a dominant platform or big platform's ability to collect a lot of data about consumers or about people who transact business on their platform uh, you know, who might also be competitors to them, is that an antitrust violation? Should it be? If it's not, should it be an antitrust violation? So I think that those are some of the issues. Now, uh, my my view um, has been that you can, you know, we, we've used antitrust, you know, for many years to look at, you know, is there going to be an impact on competition from a merger? Are there, you know, data sets about information, sometimes even consumer information, that, you know, combining them is going to allow an anti-competitive effect to occur? And so we, we kind of have the tools to, to look at that. And then separately, what's consumer protection law? What's privacy law supposed 
do. Privacy law is supposed to look at an individual consumer's interest, a promise that was made to that person or, or you know, some sort of unfair practice that is causing them some kind of harm. And if there's a problem there, whether you're a big company or a small company, consumer protection, privacy law is the right path towards that. I, you know, I, I'm concerned about using a tool like antitrust when you have a perfectly good <laughs> tool in, in, in privacy law. So that's kind of where those issues are coming from. Now, interestingly, kind of a third strain of this is if privacy law means, or like the new privacy law in Europe, GDPR, if there are new privacy laws implemented in the U.S., caused a reduction in the ability of companies to collect or share information about consumers, would that give an undue advantage to the large online players who already have that information such that they should be forced to share their data to foster competition? It creates some very strange cross-currents and dynamics, but that's definitely something that's being discussed in Europe, and some people are sort of raising some of those issues here as well. Wayne, you mentioned a little bit about um, the FCC's big data report and, and kind of some of the relevance in that report to the AI concepts that were discussed at the hearings. Are there? Um, can you tell us how the FCC has handled emerging technology issues earlier? Are there other things they're looking at uh, for baseline information outside of the big data report? You know, I think historically the the, the FTC often has you know, workshops or hearings or other sorts of ways for public comment when, when dealing with new technologies in an effort to really understand the potential issues and have a public dialogue about it before launching into sort of, you know, in, in, enforcement. Um, that, that tends to be the trend. I think if, if you look at over the last few years, there's been, for example, you know, some of the stuff I worked on when I was there was financial technology or fintech. You know, there were, there were a number of public workshops, among many other things, dealing with privacy um, that dealt with um, these emerging issues and, you know, how, how potentially to engage on them. On the enforcement piece, because so much of what the agency does do with enforcement, a lot of the way that, not always, but uh, it attempts to take enforcement actions in ways that are uh, technology neutral, right? So, the idea would be that um, if there's an enforcement provision, it's, it's applying established consumer protection principles, and you have you know, something like Section 5 of the FTC Act, which is um, principle-based, as opposed to um, really trying to regulate the underlying technology itself. I think, you know, from my experience, there was a, you know, a lot of care given at the time or attention paid to trying to talk about principles as opposed to um, really um, going after or imposing orders that might restrict the technology. So I think that that is part of the ongoing dialogue. I think some of the technologies, just to take AI, are really putting pressure on that in a way that um, uh, is a little concerning to me. To take one example, um, facial recognition technology. It's not always driven by AI, but it's um, something that um, there's quite a large public debate about the extent to which it's used. Is it accurate? Does it have problems? Is it, you know, offensive in some way? And, you know, the reaction that some have had, this is not at the FTC, but even some local governments, has been to ban the technology, ban the uses of it. Whereas I think that there's a role for an approach that is more about trying to figure out the potential harms or the potential things that could go wrong 
and then try not to restrict the technology, which has many, many beneficial uses, but instead to um, try to figure out where there are harms and ways to cure them. And I think that, you know, as the FTC considers these new technologies, it is, it, it is, it is best situated to try to make sure that it's, developed, you know, looking at them in ways that doesn't uh, impose additional sort of tech-specific uh, obligations. So uh, thanks, Dwayne. Dwayne's discussion of um, the identification of potential harms and trying to remedy those harms made me think of, uh, Maureen, your initiative at the Federal Trade Commission when you were acting chairman was the informational injury workshop, which um, was a great great idea and initiative. Can you uh, just tell us a little bit more about um, what the informational injury um, initiative tried to do at the FTC while you were um, chairman? The FTC Act uh, in the consumer protection area has two parts. So it's unfair or deceptive act. So deception is pretty straightforward. You make a promise about how data is going to be used, collected, shared, protected. You don't keep it. Hence, <laughs> you, you, you know, deceive consumers. Unfairness doesn't rely on a, um, a promise. It relies on whether there is an act or practice that is, causes or is likely to cause substantial injury to consumer that the consumer can't reasonably avoid, and that's not outweighed by countervailing benefits to competition or consumers. So the FTC has brought a lot of enforcement actions based on unfairness, and so to continue to use that tool, I thought it was important to get a, a good handle on what are the kinds of injuries that can result to consumers that could rise to the level of substantial injury, so hence triggering, you know, meeting the, the statutory requirement for unfairness, caused by the exposure of information. So a lot of the original early enforcement cases focused on the exposure of financial information, social security numbers, credit card, thing, thing, account numbers, things like that, where the consumer would suffer financial injury. And everyone could agree, you know, that's substantial injury. Because the other thing about the unfairness, the kind of gloss on unfairness and substantial injury is it can't be something that is too speculative or that is too um, unpredictable. So, so I wanted to talk about what types of informational injury, so from injury, from the exposure of information, would meet that test. The FTC had brought cases about the exposure of medical information, and often that's a HIPAA violation, so you can kind of proceed under that. But were there types of injuries from the exposure of things, you know, uh, like um, medical in information that would rise to this level. And we, we did find, you know, the FTC did bring certain cases based, based on that type of injury where someone lost their job, for example, because, you know, their medical information was exposed. We also looked at the exposure of, like, there are some cases the FTC brought where it was um, unauthorized surveillance in the home, where web cameras were, um, laptop cameras were turned on and uh, collected, you know, pictures of, of people and, you know, private moments, th things like that. And we thought, you know, we needed to have a good grounding in that, uh, you know, would that be a substantial injury that would meet meet the test? So that's that was what the workshop was directed to. You know, given the increasing pressure on the FTC to take action, to be an active enforcer of privacy, I thought it was important to put better definitional boundaries around what kinds of substantial injury 
might uh, rise to the level of an FTC unfairness case. So that's what um, that's what the workshop focused on, and then also what perhaps wouldn't be <laughs> be sufficient, right? What kinds of information wouldn't be um, you know causing substantial injury? So so that's that's what the workshop um, was about. And you had asked about privacy and competition in my answer, <laughs> neglected to mention that Bilal Syed at um, the, in his Georgetown speech mentioned that the FTC was going to prepare an update or an addendum to the commentary on the horizontal merger guidelines that address acquisitions where the concern is diminished competition for non-price attributes. So that could be diminished competition on quality and privacy could be considered a quality attribute or acquisition and acquisitions where data is a key asset or output of one of the both parties. So that may be you know, one of the paths that the FTC is going to follow to try to give you know, more guidance on this, how do data and privacy and competition kind of intersect. Now that's in the, that's in the merger guidelines, as I said, but we'll, we'll see what, what it, how it might play out more broadly in um, you know, conduct cases as well. That makes sense. Um, so the last question, since we're almost at four, um, we've talked a lot about um, the hearings and the potential output. Do you have a sense on when the FTC may begin issuing um, reports or commentaries stemming from the hearings process? Well, Bilal said that this was the number one priority for the Office of Policy Planning, or they were already working on these. So my expectation would be we might start to see, or what is it, the early October, you know, perhaps we would see something the first one this winter, but they've uh, they've taken on quite a big task for them uh, for themselves. So I'm not, you know, I, I hesitate to predict <laughs> when they will all emerge. And of course, as I already mentioned, I think some of the learning from the hearings is already being taken up in with the tech task force. I wanted to thank both of you so much for your time and work on this panel. Um, we shall see what happens at the FCC. So thank you all for joining us. And, Michael, I'll turn it back over to you. Thank you, Svetlana. And on behalf of the Federal Society, I'd like to thank all of our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at fedtalk.org. Thank you all for joining us. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this practice group podcast. For materials related to this podcast and other Federal Society multimedia, please visit the Federalist Society's website at fedsoc.org slash multimedia.